Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. So glad that you're with us. As we continue through the book of Revelation, we are now in Revelation chapter 22. I said last time that we would try to get through verses 6 through 12. I made it through verses 6 and 7. So we're picking up there. And here's where we're at. The... The new heaven and the new earth has been established, right? And now John is doing a a bit of an epilogue, uh, an inspired end note, transcript, if you will, and uh, almost a recap a little bit. But but really, it has to do with our response to the fact that, that Jesus Christ is going to come back. It's an imminent return. So much so, as we mentioned before, that the New Testament church was filled in their theology with this idea that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. This wasn't wrong. This is exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. He wanted them to be ready. He wants us to be ready, ready for our own demise, ready for our death, ready for his return. And there was those parables that he gave that all emphasized being ready. He wants us to be ready. What does it mean that he's coming back? If we really thought, let's say we knew that he was for a fact coming back Uh, you know, a month from now. How would we live? Would we go out and sow our wild oats as much as we could until he came back? Obviously not. We would go out and serve him. We would love him. We would live obedient, holy lives, knowing that we are about to be, you know, judged, knowing that we are about to receive our reward. We would want to serve him. And so since his return is imminent, What should we do? Well, we should live immediately obedient lives. We covered that in the last one. In this next portion, how should we live? We should live lives that absolutely glorify God in everything that we do. Here's where we pick up in verse number seven. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So now John, the first time since the third chapter, maybe, he identifies himself. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. So I, John... He's referring now to himself. Actually, this is the first time he's mentioned himself since the first chapter, verse 9. So he heard, he saw, and he fell. I mean, he was in awe. So he falls at the feet of this angel, and he misdirects his worship. There's only one who's worthy of worship, and that is God. And so the angel is going to correct him here. I, I think a rather innocent mistake. Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, James, John at the transfiguration all fell at the feet of Jesus. And this is a natural response. It fell at the feet of an angelic visitation. And so the angel then says, don't do that. I, I, I think of when Paul landed at the island, performed some miracles, a snake bit him, and and he, he didn't die, and then they wanted to venerate him. They wanted to worship him, and he said, don't do that. Or when they were coming to the temple, I think it was the Apostle Peter who lifted the man and said, you know, uh, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you. And they wanted to worship them, and they said, why are you wanting to worship us? Don't worship the apostles. We we are just, we're just like you in that we are human beings in need of a Savior, 
there is one that we want to direct you to that is Jesus Christ. Too many times in ministry, there's a direction towards people or towards men. But, of course, the Lord is the only one that's worthy of all of our glory and honor and all of our praise. And so the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. This is a great theology of angels. Angels are, are all in Revelation. They are speaking. They are doing things. There is, there is so much work done, service done by these angels. But here we find we are not to worship angels. We're not to look for angels. Angels are ministers of his sent to, you know, help us as God sees fit. But they're, they're brother, brethren, he says. Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets and those who heed the works of this book. So a fellow servant. I, the angel is saying, I do the bidding of God as you do. I am a fellow servant. I serve God and worship God. This is proper. We are not to worship angels, saints, any created being, the Virgin Mary. This is so. This is a, in the history of the Catholic Church where there's w- the worship of the Virgin Mary, and then they say, well, we don't want to worship, so they're going to venerate someone. That's wrong. Honor where honor is due, but understand that you're looking at the, the new heaven and the new earth. We're all going to be equally serving the Master Jesus. This is one of the things that's going to be so great about heaven is that we are all 100% agreed on the fact that we are nothing and He is everything. It's a problem in this world when people want you to worship them or when you yourself and your own pride want to be worshipped. But in heaven, there's going to be no mistake. There's no pecking order. There is there is <laughs> the triune God and there is everyone else. And we all are His servants. So you shouldn't venerate and it should jealously annoy you as a believer when there's a veneration of other people, other beings, or or the the Virgin Mary. That's nowhere in Scripture to be done. Honor to where whom honor is due, but worship only to God. Now, he goes on. Now we're in verses 10 and 11. I'm sorry, I started in verses 8 and 9, not 7, just... For clarity. Now we're in 10 and 11. And he said to me, this is the angel speaking to John, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Okay, the second part of this seems weird. We're going to go through it. But the first part's very clear. Don't seal up the words of this prophecy. In other words, and this may be the most ironic portion of of this entire book right here at the end what is it what does this mean do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book it means this is not to be hidden this is a message that is to be proclaimed and it is in doing so it should bring obedience to Jesus Christ and worship to Jesus Christ. Don't seal these things up. Don't hide these things. Folks, I've said this. I mean, if you've listened to all of the teachings, I think this is number 49 on Revelation. You know, I I get I can get worked up about this. I think it's so important. There is no hidden secret meaning in Revelation. If, if people try to tell you that there is some 
allegorical, secret, mystical, hidden message throughout Revelation, and they know it. I'm telling you, they're false teachers. They're trying to get money or to make themselves out as spiritual. If anyone that you know who is a believer in Christ is trying to make themselves out as spiritual, they're, they're, they're missing the point. There's none more. I don't think there's anyone more spiritual than the other. And the most spiritual people that I know, the ones who have been, how do I want to say this, just really good Christians, yielded, holy, um, seasoned. I, I think of a, a pastor a friend of mine, and uh, what, is, what is he? More like Christ. And the more you are like Christ, the less you want the attention on you. So any teacher who is trying to say that there's hidden secret meanings and they know the meanings, beware. Beware. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, it says, do not seal up these words. Don't hide them. Don't make them hidden. Don't make them mysterious. And that's what we've been saying the whole time. To not preach the book of Revelation is to fail to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory that is due him. This is telling the end of of all of the the ministry of Jesus, this is really, in many ways, the whole point. Don't seal up these words. Don't rob these words from believers. You should rightly proclaim this book and understand this book. This is to exalt the Lord, to give Him glory. And what a what a glorious revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what is going to happen. How will we know what's going to happen? How can we tie this in with Ezekiel and the Psalms and all of the things that we've talked about if you don't go through and actually understand this? So they're not to be hidden. And there's some other directions that are given about Revelation. But before we get to that, it says, let the one who... Now, this seems out of place, right? All of a sudden, he says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. The one who is holy still keep himself. What in the world are we talking about here in verses 10 and 11? This truth is set here to really explain to us that there should be a response to the truth of what is taught in the book of Revelation. Our eternal destinies determined by our response to these truths. And the truth is, some people are absolutely repulsed. I have people in my life I'm praying for, you start to share anything about Jesus and they just shut you down. They can't change the subject fast enough. They don't want to know. Other people, completely open. But some folks, when they hear the truth, it makes them angry. Uh, they want to avoid the truth at all costs. It's the state of their heart. And God, the truth is, the Lord himself must do work on their heart. The Apostle Peter told Jesus when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Some say you're this, some say you're that. And he said, Who do you say that I am? He said, You are the Christ. And Jesus immediately said to the Apostle Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So these things we know have to be um, revealed from heaven. They're proclaimed by us, but they're revealed. God has to do a work in a person's heart. And you should do your part in sharing, but God has to do his work in saving. We can't save anybody. But the truth is, (laughs) these words that are preached will either draw people or repulse people. There's no middle ground. 
There's no sitting still on this one. There's no riding the fence. People will be softened or people will be hardened. So if you're going to continue to do wrong and you hear the truth, then continue to do wrong. If you're going to be righteous, then keep yourself holy. If you're going to be filthy, then just continue to be filthy but, and, and, and even more. But you're going to be perfected in righteousness if you heed these words. You're going to know from these words how you're going to be glorified in heaven in the future. I mean, it's extremely—you can't say extremely important. There's nothing more important than the response that human beings have to the gospel. This determines your eternity. Your response to the gospel, the most important response in your life because it, it, it determines your eternity. It is more important than anything else you can name on this earth. And there are so many things that people worship and think are so incredibly important. There is nothing more important than our response to the gospel. There are, there are times when the gospel is shared And it's so resisted time after time after time that you know the worst thing that God can do in his judgment is just give you over. Just give you over. Says this, uh, the prophet Hosea says this, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Or when Jesus was talking to hardened Pharisees, he said, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. This is a wrath of abandonment. This is the worst kind of wrath. When God turns over hardened sinners to their sin, just gives them over to it. So what is this portion of the the passage saying? Okay, don't seal up the words, and then let the truth of this do what the truth of this is going to do. If it's going to harden you like Pharaoh was hardened, he heard the truth, he saw the truth, he saw the miracles, and it hardened him. Hardened. If it's going to harden you, let it harden you. If it's going to make you tender and soft to the truth of God, then let it do that. But let it, let it do its work. It's going to melt the hearts. I mean, the same heat that melts the wax hardens the clay. Is that how they say it? It's the same truth. And you know... Not only will this truth of revelation drive you to obedience as a believer, I want to be obedient. It will drive you to worship God. It will a life filled with worship. I can I am more concerned about my reward in heaven than what I'm doing on the earth. And how I'm making something on the earth it, it, that pales in comparison to what's going on with the eternal reward. So not only those two things. Not only your worship and your obedience, but also your service. When you think about the imminent return of Jesus Christ, it, it affects you in the, in the way that you want to serve and you want others to know. You immediately, as you, as you go through this book and you hear of all the judgment, first, you want to avoid that judgment yourself. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, repent of my sins. I want to have that relationship with him, dependent on him. I want to be regenerated. I need him, right? when you see all that judgment, but then your very next thought is towards all of those people in your life who don't yet know Christ. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. This is Jesus talking now, obviously. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Behold, I am coming quickly. When you hear that quickly, you know that that word means eminently. 
And as I explained before, when you think about all of human history, when Jesus Christ returns, it will seem quick. It will seem quick. Like a woman in labor. It'll be, it'll be that quick. So he's coming quickly. He's coming eminently. He's going to be here. He is coming back. Listen to what Mark 13 says. Jesus is speaking here. He says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. This is the whole point, by the way, of not knowing. For him saying it's imminent. I mean, is there any way to express this? For the New Testament believers that we know were always thinking about the imminent return, the soon return, they were thinking it was soon. For all those naysayers and doubters who say, well, it hasn't happened yet, so it's not going to happen. Can you imagine Jesus saying, I'm going to come back, but it's going to be a while. So just take it easy. Live how you want. But then, you know, after a while, you probably should get ready. No. He's going to say, be always on the alert. You want to be ready. So he gives us these these stories, these parables. Why? Why would we want to be on the alert? Because you do not know. You don't know when the appointed time will come. It's like a guy who's on a journey. You don't know when he's going to come back. Maybe evening, maybe midnight, maybe in the morning. But if he comes suddenly and finds you asleep, Listen, you need to be on the alert. His reward is with him. He's going to uh, render to every man according to what he has done. The rewards of heaven are going to be enjoyed by those who serve him. Those who serve him now are storing up treasures in heaven. They're going to have a greater opportunity to serve him in heaven. So, we should, because Jesus is coming back, because it is imminent, We should be diligent. We should be faithful. We should be obedient. We should be worshipful. We should want to serve him. There should be actually an urgency to our service. When you are a part of a church, you prepare yourself on Saturday evening because worship matters to you. And you go and you you serve in your place where you're serving. You worship with a full heart, giving glory to God, with all of his saints in the congregation like Jesus wants you to do. You're being obedient to him. Then you listen to his word being preached because you love his word, because you're a child of his, and because you know his return is imminent. You want to be found serving him. You want to be found with oil in the lamp. You want to be found as one who is ready. Like the disciples when they were praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, "Can't you tarry for one hour? Be ready. The enemy is is lurking and you can't be ready. You 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 need to be ready for his return." What does that mean? That means we live obedient lives, worshipful lives and lives of 
service. Since all of these words are true, since he is returning, we should be ready. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be ready for your return. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you that they're not hidden. I thank you, Father, that you want us to understand them, and you've given them to us to understand. And God, I pray that your words upon these listeners now, people who are listening, and myself included, God, I pray that your words would always find a soft, responsive place in us, that we would not be hardened by the truth, but, Father, that we would love the truth all the more, and we would be more and more like you. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be obedient. Help us to live worshipful lives for your glory, that we would be ready, Father, when you return. In Jesus' name, amen.